We just rejoice with you mothers today, and if you did not hear, afterwards there will be some flowers available for you mothers to pick up on the way out. Uh, We trust that you'll do that. When it comes to God, there are various images that people have about who God is and what he's like. And all too often within the eyes, uh, or the eyes of the mind, I should say, of man, God is thought of in the image of man rather than man being thought of as being uh, made in the image and likeness of God. And it's partly because as human beings it's hard for us to understand someone who is omniscient, someone who is uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, and, and uh, from everlasting to everlasting, uh, because we, had, uh, we come into existence in a point in time and it's, it's hard for the finite mind. In fact, it's impossible to fully comprehend uh, the person and work of God. But as man tries to imagine God, uh, it's interesting to see some of the concepts that come out. They go all over the place. Some usually see him as a tyrant, that he's someone who's created. And in fact, if you get into, as we have seen recently in the church, some of the Greek gods and so forth, uh, he's just seen as somebody who's angry all the time, uh, like the Greek god uh, who is not truly a god, Poseidon, who takes the oceans and throws them wild, uh, the one of lightning and so forth and so on. And that even played a part into Israel's thinking with uh, the conqueror to come. And the fear of God is such that it's someone we can't even have a relationship with, but someone who's a tyrant and a military leader, and that's it. And that's, uh, while there's some truth to God uh, uh, being a just God and a powerful God, it's not a true picture of God. Others go to the other extreme and see him as a wimp. They see him basically as if the God does exist. He's a wimp. He really doesn't. He's lost control of everything, and and uh, not only that, but uh, he's like a genie in a, a bottle. And unfortunately, sometimes even believers think of it that way. And when we go to him in prayer, he's supposed to respond. And if he doesn't, and he doesn't answer everything that we want the way we want it, then he's really not God anyway, and and, and so forth. And obviously, he's an unfair God, and we know that none of that is true. Uh, but it is some of the concepts that people have in relationship to God. And the Scriptures, as we get into chapter 10, present God in various ways, and we've said that. But how many of us think, honestly, I'm talking about believers first of all, how many of us really picture and see God as a good shepherd? Every day. I'm not talking about now when you're sitting in church. I'm talking about when you're in the middle of your worst trial. You can even imagine. How many of you at that moment are seeing God as a good shepherd? And seeing God the way he truly is. People don't think of God that way often. And yet as we come into this chapter, and as we are here today, we've entitled the message based on what the scriptures say here, the good shepherd. And that's the image that's presented. While God is powerful, while God is loving, while God is just, he is also a caring shepherd, as we see here. To put it back in perspective, because uh, we did have a different break last week, in chapter 9, we need to remember that we saw that there was a man born blind, and he was healed. I'm not going to deal with a lot of it, but just to remind you. This man was born blind and had been healed, and he testified to the leadership about his healing. And yet, as he did, because of the prejudices that they had toward Jesus Christ specifically, they cast the man out of the synagogue. They cast the man out of the synagogue, 
And yet, as the man got cast out of the synagogue, it's interesting because he comes across the path of Jesus Christ again, the one who had healed him, and he comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the one that was sent. The Jewish leaders, on the other, on the other hand, had rejected, first of all, the man, even though they couldn't deny the healing, although they tried to and said, uh, he's not the guy that was healed. They also rejected the work of Jesus Christ and the miracle of Jesus Christ. They not only cast out the man, but they had a conversation with Jesus Christ. And uh, they, in the course of that conversation, as chapter 9 winded down in that conversation, began to see themselves as very uh, spiritually minded people who are not blind and even uh, asked that question of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we blind also, and so forth, and, and, and so on. And that led us into chapter 10. And as we came into chapter 10, just for a moment to get us to, to verse uh, 11 there, if you look at verse 6 for a second, you can look at it, we find out that Jesus began to tell them a parable. He began to tell them a story. He began to use a figure of speech, if you're looking at the New American Standard. And so with various words that would use, and we found out that John doesn't use the word parable, but he has used a couple of times, or he does use a couple of times in his book, the concept of the figure of speech. So we can't lose sight of that. He's teaching a story. And I want you to realize that because you know enough about parables, I hope, that you never make a parable walk on all fours. In other words, when he's teaching with a parable or a story, he's trying to get a main point across. You don't try to make everything mean something in relationship to everything else. If you do that, you will get in trouble. It's a very common error that happens with Bible teachers. They take a story and they'll make every little detail, the tree, the branch, and everything else, mean something. If the text says it does, then it does. If the text doesn't say that it does, then you don't do that because he's got a central point that he's trying to get across. And if you miss the central point, you've missed everything. It doesn't matter what you do with the rest of it. Well, he's using that to instruct, first of all, as we saw in the context, to instruct the leaders and the people that have witnessed and heard the testimony of the blind man of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he trying to instruct them about? If you miss this, you miss chapter 10. He's trying to instruct them as to who he is, that is, who Jesus Christ is. That's number one. Number two, what his work is. Who he is and what his work is. And three, to expose, I believe, who the religious leaders are, who is supposed to be, by the way, shepherds and who they are. So that is what leads us into this story of the good shepherd, or the, the flock and the shepherd. We also learned a couple of things to remind you as to where we've gone, because we've gone through the first ten verses. That flocks were brought to the countryside to feed them. They, were, they went great distances and so forth in order to get food, in order to get water. And at night, what would happen is, frequently because they were far away, they'd come into a community pen. And as they came into this community pen, which was made usually of, of uh, stones, and they would make a stone wall. There was only one entrance into the gates, uh, uh, one gate, excuse me, into that pen. But several flocks would be gathered at nighttime, and there was one doorkeeper who was usually a hired person. And then in the morning, the shepherd would return. And he would return, and he would call out his sheep, and they would respond to the very shepherd, and then he'd lead them out for pasturing during the day. In verses 1 through 6, he pointed out, that thieves and robbers do not come through that entranceway. What they do is climb up another way. They try to get in because they would not be given entrance by that doorkeeper. 
And that was the part of the lesson in verses 1 through 6. They try to steal, they try to kill the sheep, and they are not the shepherd of the sheep. However, the true shepherd, who is the God of Israel, by the way, number one, he knows their sheep, his sheep in verses 1 through 6. He leads them and they know who he is. And he's talking about his sheep and he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel because they should have understood this. And that was verses 1 to 6. And you notice in verse 6, they did not understand what he was saying. So he went on in verses 7 through 10. And after talking about the doorkeeper and the sheep calling them, he then presented Jesus as the actual door, one entrance way. And he is the God of the sheepfold. He's the one who gives eternal life. He is the entrance into eternal life. He is the entrance into heaven. He is the way by means, uh, he is the means by way you get saved, if you will, in verses 7 through 10. And that leads us into verses 11 through 15. He's now illustrated that he's the door after saying that he was uh, the shepherd that would call them out and he would come to the doorkeeper. They didn't get that, so now he illustrates it by concentrating on the door. And now he intro introduces the concept of the shepherding. And so we need to understand a couple of more points as we get into this aspect now to understand the Good Shepherd. Very a few comments on it, but enough to make it relevant, I hope. The first of all, the work of a shepherd was very difficult. It was very hard. It was long hours that were put in. It was very dangerous work. We need to understand that. I've shown you some pictures recently, and I showed them to some people over the weekend again, and you had a chance to look at a shepherd. We think of them as very weak people, very simple people, not very strong, not facing a lot of danger, but it was life-threatening, and that's important. Uh, it was not a highly respected position. In fact, if you remember out of Egypt, when they were going to be returning, when uh, Joseph and so forth uh, was going to get his father back and all of the, you know, Egypt wouldn't even let the shepherds be around them. They couldn't eat with them. They had to be out in a different area with their flocks. It was not a very well respected position and people thought of it as a very lowly position but it was hard work would you look with me to two passages very quickly genesis chapter 31 this will just be brief genesis 31 verses 38 to 42 just to see how hard this work was these were very strong people and in verse 38 let me pick it up these these 20 years this is jacob talking here by the way these 20 years have I been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks, that which was torn of beasts, see what he faced? I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it at my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. You see all the work that was involved. Thus I was by day, look, watch this, Thus I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sheep, my excuse me, sleep fled from my eyes. Very, very difficult work. You can read it through verse 42. The other one is, let's look at David, 1 Samuel chapter 17, just for a second. What we're looking at is just how hard the work was. 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, what I want to look at verses 34 to 36. This is mostly known because of David and Goliath and so forth. But what I want to see is the shepherding part of it. Just verses 34 to 36. But David said to Saul, this is when he's going to go out and fight Goliath, your servant was tending his father's sheep 
when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from the mouth, from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant, uh, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And what I want you to see, anybody, by the way, want to take out an application for this job? It's night, it's day, it's all the time, it's labor, it's, you've got to be alert, your, your life is in line, you've got to fight, you've got to protect someone else's flock, and so forth and so on. Very, very hard work. And many of the shepherds in the Middle East, and there's a lot of them in Turkey, Greece, and Israel, and all of that area, you'll still find them today, most of them were hired. Most of the, and that's important to our text right here. Most of the shepherds were hired people that were paid, and one of the reasons was that people didn't want to get their own life in jeopardy. Sometimes there were children involved. David was an example. They wouldn't go out and hire somebody else, but within their own family, and by the way, it's usually the, the lowest job that it was given to. And in this case, it was David. The youngest would go out, it was not a job that anyone else wanted, and that's what they had to do. They had to 24-7 be involved in watching over these sheep. In very, very few, but in some, and this gets us right to the text, in very, very few circumstances was the owner the one that went out and shepherded. They hired somebody else, or if they even used their family, they went down to the youngest or someone else, the owner very rarely, but they did on some occasions. That gives us the background of this text. When you come to verse 11, we are introduced to the good shepherd, the concept of the good shepherd. Look at it. I'll come back to the I am in a minute. I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He's talking about the good shepherd, first of all. He's talking about a shepherd that has been set apart that is unique. There aren't any others like this one. This is the one. He is the good one. And that good is not just good by way of morally good, though that can be used that way. He's dealing with the class of the person. He's dealing with the quality. He's dealing with the essence of the person right here. The nature, the character, if you will. This shepherd is of a different character. This shepherd is unique in his... This is a one type of sheep, uh, one type of shepherd, and he is the only good shepherd in this sense, the only one in this quality. And in the context, which you've got to see, the main purpose of 11 to 15 is that he's contrasting the good shepherd with the hired shepherds. You missed that, you've missed it. That's the point. The first part was that there was a gatekeeper, and he would only allow the shepherds access through the gates. The second part is that he is the door. There's only one door in Jesus Christ to teach him and his work. He is the entranceway into the sheepfold. The third aspect, the primary point of the whole thing, is there is one good shepherd and the others are hired servants. Here he is. That's the contrast. That's what he's dealing with. And that's what he's talking about. He's contrasting them, in this case, He's talking about this being the owner of the sheep. You'll notice in verse 12 for a minute, he says, he was a hired hand. That's going to be the contrast. Who is not the owner of the sheep. 
the good shepherd is the owner. The good shepherd of the sheep is the owner. There were many shepherds in Israel history. As you open up your Old Testament, it is filled with referring to the leaders as shepherds. In the New Testament, there is talk about pastors and elders being under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many different shepherds, and they were familiar with it. But there is only one good shepherd. There is only one owner of the flock. Well, who is this good shepherd? Well, I know you know the answer, and as someone prayed this morning, we ought not to take these things for granted. His identity is given to us right there in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. That's what Jesus Christ has presented. It's another one of the I am verses. It's another one of identifying who Jesus Christ is. He's not only the miracle worker of the blind man. He's not only the door and the only way in. He is the one and only good shepherd. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd, the one true shepherd of the flock of God. That's who he is. He is the only mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this. There is no mediator between God and man except for one. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He's the only, and that is the man Christ Jesus. He is the only mediator between God and man. Later on in John chapter 14, you've heard it quoted many times, verse 6, we will learn that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth and the life. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we are told that Jesus Christ is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one good shepherd. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one person that can provide to be the true shepherd of the flock of God, and that is Jesus Christ. There are under-shepherds. There were shepherds in Israel. These leaders were supposed to understand themselves, not just as Pharisees and Sadducees, but as people responsible for shepherding the flock of God. And how many times in the Old Testament did he say that the sheep were scattered? They were like uh, sheep not having a shepherd. And he, he rebuked over and over Israel and the leaders for not shepherding the flock of God the way they should have. But Jesus Christ, first of all, is the identity. He is the good shepherd. Now, why is he the good shepherd? How do we know that he is the good shepherd? And that leads us to the second point in your outline. His verification, his actions, the identity is seen in now looking at the work of the good shepherd. And you'll notice what it says, verse 11. He says, the good shepherd, first of all, point number one, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Very clear. First of all, I want to point this out to you. It is voluntary. He lays his life down. No one took it from him. This is unlike, that's the point of the passage. This is in contrast to the hired servants. If one of the hired shepherds died, they died not voluntarily, but they died accidentally. They would die involuntarily. They would die, if you will, unintentionally because they were doing their job. But it wasn't because they willingly laid down their life. The shepherd here in his death is to lay down his life, and it says for the sheep, and I'll come back to that in a second. But I want you to see right away, Jesus Christ's death was planned. It was voluntary. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today, take a step back at that. 
Don't take that for granted. The good shepherd voluntarily, for the likes of you and I, laid down his life. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know, and I am known to my Father, I lay down my life, and there it is again, for the sheep. Verse chapter 15. Just go there for a second. Verse 13. Same book. 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, that one lays down his life. Look at this. Another precious way of understanding for his friends. Then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And there's a call even unto repentance. And that's where we see it. And you could turn to other passages in Scripture as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, this was the determinate plan of God. That's Acts chapter 2. I think it's verse 23. It says that this was the determined, predetermined plan of God that the Messiah, that the Lamb of God would lay down His life. And yes, I know you're concentrating on the sheep, but first of all, notice that He lays it down. It is voluntary. It is in contrast to the hiring who flees. Why did He do that? Because as sheep, we are wandering. We go astray. We are unable to save ourselves. Men and women, boys and girls, cannot save themselves. Go with me to 1 Peter 2 for a moment. 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, 2 uh, verses 24 and 25. You'll be familiar. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Why? so that we might die to sin and to live unto righteousness. That's talking about the way we should be living as well. But notice this. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. What a picture. But now you have been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So if you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is absolutely amazing. We want to reflect back on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily gave of his life. And he gave of his life, according to Romans, while we were helpless. He gave, to his, he gave his life while we were roaming and going astray. He gave his life while we were sinners. He gave his life while we were enemies. Yes, an enemy of God. He gave his life while we were dead and without life at all. The Lord Jesus Christ, the owner of the sheep, not only did it voluntarily, but he did it substitutionarily. He gave it for, in behalf of. It can be understood either way, that he paid for, that he paid as a substitute. Why? Because we cannot. And to put it in perspective, there's a choice. The wages of sin is death. And we can either pay that ourselves, which is incapable of any human being to satisfy the righteousness of God, or it can be paid by another. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And this predetermined plan of God was that Jesus Christ would lay down his life. Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 15. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that was our condition, folks. He made you alive. Together with Him. How did He do it? 
having forgiven us all our transgressions. How did he do that? As a lamb to the slaughter, according to the book of Isaiah. In verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way. How did he do that? Nailing it to his cross. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did as a sacrificial, voluntary lamb of God. Go back to John chapter 10. And I'll deal with the for the sheep in just one moment, but I want to go so you see verses 12 and 13 first. You notice this, in contrast to that, he was the hired hand and not the shepherd and is not the owner of the sheep. What does he do? He sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Why? He flees because he is not he is excuse me is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Number 1 he does not own them. Who is that? The hired servant. Number 2 he leaves them. The hired servant. Number 3 he flees. Why does he do that? Self-preservation. Self-concern. Personal interest, no concern for the sheep whatsoever because he does not own them. The Lord Jesus Christ did not do that. Remember, most of the time people were hired to take care of the sheep. Jesus Christ, I want you to get this, if you belong to him, he cares personally for you. He knows every single thing about you. He knows the trials that you're facing. He knows the joys that are in your heart. He knows the heartaches that you have. And He Himself is the owner of the sheep laid down His life for you. Personally. Now it says something else there. It says that He laid down the life for the sheep. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. In its context. It's particular. You can't escape it. Well, you say, does that mean everywhere? It has not denied... Now stay with me, some of you won't. But it has not denied what he's already taught. What has he taught? That Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, chapter 4, verse 42. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verses 29 and 36. What is he dealing with? He is dealing with specific here. He's dealing with the special situation of appropriation. How do we know that? In the context. He's dealing with the fact that the sheep, he's saying that he's already identified them as the sheep. And by the way, he's going to say in the very next verse, there are other sheep that are not yet of this fold. Now, yes, he's dealing with the Gentiles. I'll help you with that already. No question about it. But he, that's not the whole concentration. The concentration is, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not the hired servant. And he's talking about the sheep that were being let out, just like he was in verses 1 through 6 just like he was in verses 7 through 10. And what is he saying? The emphasis is on the fact that he has laid down his life. Who is going to receive the benefit of that at all? The only one of the sheep. The only one of the sheep. They're the ones that know him. They're the ones that he's called. He's got others that he will have to call out, as you'll see they're not part of it. Not only that, you'll notice in the context that he says that a wolf comes and snatches them away. The sheep of God never get, and the, by the way, I didn't spend the time on it, but that word snatches away means to snatch, to seize, to take for oneself. 
That's literally what the Greek word means. There is no way that anyone takes us for themselves other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? He scatters them. He snatches and scatters them. So what I'm saying to you, yes, it's absolutely particular in the context. No escaping. But the concentration is on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down His life. He laid it down substitutionarily. And He laid it down to those who belong to Him in the context of what He's dealing with and has not overridden anything else that He's ever taught in the context. I want you to see also in verse 14, another reason that Jesus qualifies, He not only voluntarily puts His life down, He not only does it substitutionarily, but He does in verse 14, He says, I know my own, and my own are known, uh, excuse me, know me. That goes back to the beginning of the passage. That goes back to what? We know the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are still some that haven't been called, just like there's going to be in verse 16, just like there are today. There are still who are elected and have not yet been called by God into the sheepfold of God, and He will call them. There will be none lost. And yes, there are not a, there's not a situation where everyone's going to be in heaven. No. Who's going to be in heaven? Only the sheep. Only the, the ones that have come and appropriated. But those two elements are absolutely there in Scripture. That Jesus Christ laid down His life and that the appropriation, the belief, and yes, He does call us. Yes, He does awaken us. No question. But you notice here the intimate relationship. I don't want you to miss that today. Jesus knows us, according to verse 3, by name. He knows us, and He explains it this way in verse 15. Even as the Father knows Me, the shepherd says, and I know the Father. What does that mean to us? I want you to see how that Greek word is used for another reason here. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I think we'll get the point. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 25. I'll go read verse 24. Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until he gave uh, birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. And what happened was he did not know her. Some of them, uh, some of the translations have it that way. And that idea of knowing her, it's talking about relations. He did not have relations. What is that? That's an intimate way. And in John chapter 10, what he's saying is the father and the son know one another in a very intimate way. It's an experiential way. And that is also true of the sheep with the shepherd. We know the Lord Jesus Christ, and He knows us intimately. It is grounded in the same type of relationship that He has with the Son. And I bring that up because He cares. And He not only knows us by name, but it's an intimate relationship where experientially, day after day, He knows all about us. And as we grow in our knowledge of Him, what is eternal life? According to chapter 17 of John, it is knowing God. The world does not know Him. It is knowing Him in an experiential way. Not just that God's out there, but He's my personal Savior. That His sacrifice was for me. His sacrifice was substitutionary for me. It was when I was dead. It was when I was an enemy for me. It's a relationship that I know Him. How, in what way? Let me try to demonstrate it in certain ways. First of all, 
the responsive reading that I had this morning was twofold. One being Mother's Day. You noticed how it addressed the mothers. Paul says, I cared for you like a mother does a nursing sibling, a nursing child. We understand that. And she works and labors hard all day long. And he says, that's what I've done for you. Our Savior is greater. And our shepherd cares for us in a more intimate way. For example, you know that when the Lord Jesus Christ was praying, this is one we already saw. And his sheep were in a boat getting hit with a storm. He even left his prayer life. Now he knew, but I want you to see how he cared, and he stilled the storm. He went to them. They were frightened. He knew Peter in such an intimate way that he could turn around and say, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. I know all about you, Peter. And by the way, he didn't, I don't know if you caught that, but he never kept Peter from the trial. He said, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. You mean he prays for us? Yes. You mean he knows, but he allows us even to go through the trials? Yes. Because James tells us we can count it all joy because through the trials, he's perfecting us. He's helping us to grow. He knows us in such a way that we've already learned in John that when we haven't yet come into the fold, though from the foundation of the world we've been there, he knows how to draw us so he can go to the woman at the well who knows nothing about what's going on and the blind man who knew nothing about what was going on and eventually being drawn in because they're part of the sheep, part of the sheep bull. He knew when Peter was in prison and he knew how to get Peter out of prison. He knew Paul when Paul was in prison and he allowed Paul to even go through the beatings that he took and he could be there so that Paul and Silas could sing and he knew all about them. Our Savior is such a great Savior and knows us in such an intimate way as the Father knows the Son that he knew when Stephen was stoned, he didn't neglect him. He didn't leave him. But as the one good shepherd was right there, and as we know, as he looked up, that is, Stephen saw his Savior standing. He wasn't forsaken. Our good shepherd never forsakes us. He never leaves us. He is the good shepherd that reminds us again in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. The ones I've just let out to pasture. And you've got to be specific. He was dealing with Israel. He led them out. And then he'll talk about the Gentiles as well as coming in. But he's dealing with the fact that my sheep, I care for them. I not only call them out, I not only am the door, but he says, I have laid down my life voluntarily. It is something that we wouldn't do for one another. Hopefully we know our mothers very well. Hopefully husbands and wives, in case there's no children, you know yourself and your spouse very well in an intimate way, in a way that no others know. And you care for one another. And we know our sons and our daughters. And we know those that are close to us. Think about that relationship. And he says, he knows us even, and we know him even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's how Christ knows us. He knows all about us. 
He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. And He's there to care for us. Yes, if you're saved, you've got a Savior that not only saved you, but He knows you. And He's interceding. Would you tell me another verse before we come back to John and close? Go with me to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God. How do you do it? Through him. Don't miss the last part. Since he always lives, not a dead Savior, it's a living Savior. To do what? To make intercession for them. Not only does the blood continue to cleanse us from 1 John, yes it does, but He also continues to make intercession. We can go boldly to the throne of grace. We can find help in time of need. We've got a good shepherd. The only one good shepherd is Jesus Christ who laid down His life. You want to be particular? If put your name there. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, put your name there. For you, He's laid down His life. You are precious to Him. You are one who He loves, and He's not going to forsake. He's still interceding. His blood ever intercedes. Say, I haven't come to Christ. What are you talking about? He's the only good shepherd. He cries out, still with the same gospel. You cannot save yourself. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life found in Jesus Christ. He went to the cross to satisfy the righteousness of God. Paid the penalty for sin. And to all who will believe, to all who will come to Him, He will give the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. And the appeal of the Gospel is still there, which is able to get right down into where you live. It hasn't got to do whether you're an enemy of God. It hasn't got to do whether you've got sin in your life. It hasn't got to do with who you are at all. It's got to do with a good shepherd who laid down his life to satisfy a righteous and holy God. And his appeal is, Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your soul. Where? In the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only good shepherd. What a tender picture. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no one that's going to snatch us out of the Father's hand. There's no one that's going to snatch us out of the Son's hand. There is no one who can protect us better from anything that comes along than the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to Him? Have you trusted in Him for salvation? Come today. He's the only way. He's the only door. He's the only Good Shepherd. Trust in Him for the payment for your sin on the cross of Calvary as He satisfied a righteous and holy God. And you've come to Him. You've appropriated by faith the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that He laid down His life for you. Don't ever forget that He's ever interceding for you. And as a good shepherd, He's caring. Even when you don't feel like He is. Even when you feel like things are not going the way they should be going, our shepherd voluntarily not only lay down his life, but he knows us. And isn't it great that we know him and we can go to him? 
And we can find grace. And we can love Him because He first loved us. Close in prayer. Our Father in God, we thank You and praise You that You're not like the hired servant. I believe with direct application to the religious leaders of the day who scattered the flock of God. Who, Father, did not willingly do anything by way of laying down their lives, but only the Good Shepherd who knew the Father, was with the Father from the beginning, came to the earth and took on flesh, could go to the cross to satisfy your righteousness. Thank you that He voluntarily, in behalf of us, went to the cross for the penalty and price for sin. Thank you and praise you that there are many in this room that have come to Christ. And that, Father, we have that intimate relationship with Him. Help us, Father, to count it precious, to not take it for granted. Father, we're so prone to wander. We sing that song so often from the things of God. We thank you that your caring staff and your caring love draws us back. We thank you that you know all about us. We thank you that we can know you as you reveal yourself through the Word of God. And while many may read the Bible, they cannot even understand it because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, don't have the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, it's also our heart's desire that in this room there could be people who have not yet trusted in Christ. I pray that you draw them to the Savior. I pray that you'd help them to come to Him. Come, ask forgiveness of sins. Realize that the payment has been paid by Jesus Christ. Believe on Him that they might be saved. They would come through the door, come to the Good Shepherd, and believe on Him and have eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.